I'm Mike. And I'm Heather. And this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today we are chatting with Dr. Janet McVitie. Janet is a co-recipient of this year's Bernie Melanson Award, which recognizes a lifetime achievement in outdoor and environmental education in Saskatchewan. Janet is a recently retired assistant professor in the Department of Educational Foundations in the College of Education at the University of Saskatchewan. Join us as we discuss place-based education, Janet's work with pre-service teachers, and Janet's thoughts about what would make the world a better place. Hi, Janet. How are you doing? Um, good, good. Yeah. And you? Yeah, yeah, good. Heather had an eventful day with a blackbird. and Yes, I did. It attacked me, actually, oh, in downtown really? Regina. Well, I was pushing my daughter. What yeah. Kind of blackbird. <laughs> well, I I'm not completely <laughs> confident about my um my She was dodging I and think looking. Was, <laughs> yes, I was dodging it and I was in panic mode. I think it was a brewer's mm-hmm. blackbird. Yeah, because it wasn't like it was smaller than a crow in different shape than a crow, and certainly not as big as a raven. And it was completely black. It might have been a might have been a grackle. They have a I've heard grackles are aggressive. Are grackles more likely to swoop? Because it was like swooping at my head and it was acting like a swallow, but I I don't we'll it was completely it black. black. So that's why I don't think it was a swallow. Blackbird. Yeah. <laughs> a blackbird. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. sounds good to me. I've been having interesting um experiences with the magpies. I actually put a peanut feeder out during the winter and the blue jays would come first thing in the morning and they'd raid the peanuts and then they would hide them right at the bottom, like in the leaves in the fall. And I'm thinking, you're crazy because it's going to get covered with snow. And then the magpies would come and they would find them right there at the bottom of the feeder. They just dig them out. And then I realized the blue jays were only hiding some of them right there. I think they were tricking the blue jays or the magpies into thinking that the magpies had found them all but they hadn't they'd actually taken a bunch away but now I've got magpies that are nesting here and if I go out like they they're babies actually they kick them out of the nest they're fledglings and they're hopping around and they're around on the ground for about two weeks and the magpies are just beacon off all the time if there's any danger near their baby so I can tell where my cat is in the neighborhood because there's magpies yeah and one day, well, if I go out there, they just stop. It's like they trust me. I thought, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're the bringer of peanuts. <laughs> and um, the dog was out there one day, and the mag, the little baby magpie had got up into a tree, and it was just above the dog's reach, and the dog was just focused, like just staring right at this baby. And the magpie parents were just <laughs> at the dog, and then one of them is still beaking off at the dog. The other one gets on the lawn, pops over, and pecks the dog on the tail. <laughs> like, no, come over here and chase me. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's funny to watch them. From behind a window. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I feel now. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe you just needed to feed that bird and you were like, Yes, maybe. I wasn't offering up my daughter, though. So. <laughs> and if there's there, they wouldn't offer up theirs either. So, Janet, thanks for joining us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, 
far back do you want to go? <laughs> I guess what brought you to wanting to teach place-based educational courses at the university? Uh, before that, I was teaching um, in the sciences, science methods, and I was doing that because I just really liked the environment. My mother was interested in it, and she started talking about this new word, ecology, ecosystems, because that word just came out like they kind of invented it, coined that term, and it became important in the 60s. So my mom was talking about it. And I mean, we were people who hung around outside all the time anyway. So I was really interested in that. And the route to ecology in those days is through biology. Like there wasn't this whole idea around like, it's everything. It is everything. And when you get into place-based education, you realize how everything you do is ecological education. It's like um, when we talk about racism, you know, everything you do is about racism. You're either accepting the status quo or you are working against it. And it's the same with ecology. Either we are accepting the status quo of the way we treat everything in the environment as a resource, or we are challenging that perspective. So um, place-based education was a way of bringing together all the work I'd done around student engagement and inquiry, um, uh, the assessment part of it, where the students are doing authentic tasks, they're doing worthwhile projects. And so the assessment is, well, would this stand up? You know, is this a project that would actually work? And so they're doing things that actually have value for their community, for their, and whichever, however big their community is. And they're doing it in a place where they see the relevance of what it is they're doing. And so they're taking on issues in the places they are. That's what place-based education is to me. It's not that for everybody. Some people say you're doing place-based education if you get out of the classroom. Well, classroom might be the best place for learning something. So it's not necessarily getting out of the classroom, but it is finding some place where the issues are there for me, where you can see the issues and where you can see what you're doing is making a difference. Yeah. So I guess um, I was assigned this course, this place-based education. I was involved with the creation of it. And um, it just it just makes so much sense to teach that way. How long have you been at the University of Saskatchewan? Since 1998. And I started in curriculum studies and I was teaching science education. Yeah. And surely you enjoyed the second half of your career more teaching place based than science education. <laughs> science education was a lot of fun to teach because we get to blow things up. <laughs> But yeah, place-based education is much more, um, it integrates all the subject areas, not just science, everything fits. And I really do believe in integrated learning. Another way of, an, like when you, when you engage their students in their learning um, and they really care about what they're doing, all the subjects are there. Like you just, like they're learning everything. And that's the way the world is. You don't just become a scientist and only do, science in your job you have to be able to express that you have to be able to understand that you have to know the math and most scientists have some sort of aesthetic that they're involved in and then there's the rest of their lives where they're not working that you know problems are always mm -hmm. integrated so i think you kind of mentioned it by saying like um place-based education isn't just getting outside the classroom but is there a difference in your mind between place-based and outdoor education yes 
Yes. Well, it depends. Like place-based education came originally. Um, I mean, it was invented, but then the rural network in the U.S. grabbed onto it. And so it was about helping kids to understand that this is their home and to love it and to try to make it better, which was very much of a settler ideology rather than looking at the history, um, rather than looking at the environment. So, and then when, um, when it became a critical place base, that's when I was more interested in it. So, and then outdoor education is anything that takes place in the outdoors. So um, it doesn't have to be environmental, but one kind of outdoor education is adventure education. Let's go out there and conquer nature. Um, and while we're doing it, we're conquering our fears. So, and I, yeah. And I think that it's important for kids to have that sense that what they're doing is important and that they are trying something really challenging, sort of like adventure education, but I don't believe that we should ever be kind of promoting that, go out there and conquer nature and run this river because it's unrunnable. Mm, and, chop yeah. down that tree and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> make a shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chop down the tallest tree. <laughs> yeah. So you've been teaching for a while then. Um, what have been some of your, your favorite experiences as uh, a university uh, instructor? Yeah. My favorite experiences have all been with my students in classrooms, um, sometimes my own students, but often with where I'm doing research with high school students or elementary students. Um, it's just interesting to me to see um, when kids just really come alive in their learning, when they really start caring about something and realize that, yes, this is important. Oh, this is connected to this is connected to this. And if we work on it all at once, you know, it'll make a difference. So I can't think of anything specific. But I have looked so hard for research on outdoor education or place-based education in high school students. And that is so minimal in comparison to uh, the research on uh, place-based education in the elementary years. And you mentioned that you were working with high school students a little bit too. Um, what I guess, what was the difference that you saw in growth or in the way that you approached teaching or that um, the high school teachers approached teaching in high school compared to elementary school? And I know that obviously there's the maturity and kind of the excitement for learning that is almost intrinsic in elementary. But I'm wondering if you, if you had any takeaways from like stepping into an outdoor ed class in high school. I think the problem in high school is the very structure of high schools. So they're divided up into one hour or in some places it's an hour and a half or some places it's 50 minutes and you do this subject area and then you stop, the bell rings, you know, and you have to put your books away, even if you're engaged in it and walk off and go to the next class. And um, it's, it's hard to get the time. Like teachers say, even if it takes just five minutes to get outdoors and five minutes to get back. I've got to get them out to that place. I've got to get them settled and working on this topic. And then I've got to get them back. So that's the biggest challenge, I think, with high school is trying to find those ways that you can have more time or that you can get the kids so quickly engaged that they don't even show up for class. They just go to the place. 
because they're so excited about what they're learning there. But it's really hard to get your kids to different places. But I've seen there, the high school teachers that I've seen who are doing it, they either ask to teach the same group of students for two periods in a row with um, two subjects, they'll teach them, right? or maybe they'll work with another teacher. And so they might each give up their prep to be able to teach the same group of students for three periods in a row, you know, and, and then actually get them into some place. Or then the outdoor school in Saskatoon, which is a full semester of five subjects that are integrated, but they're not really integrated. They still have to write their report cards mm-hmm. based on those five different subjects. So it's really hard to do when it's totally integrated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were having a discussion in the faculty meeting about going back because we've had these three hour classes once a week since we implemented the new program in 2012. And now that we no longer have that program, they were talking about going back to one hour, three times a week. And one of the profs said, oh yeah, she said, it's just impossible to keep the students engaged for three hours. And I thought, what? (laughs) I've never had a problem with keeping the students engaged for three hours because there's just so much. There's so much to learn. It's all exciting. Either it's science education and you're blowing something else up or (laughs) you're doing the place-based education. You're actually getting to someplace and and having a really good discussion afterwards. So I just, I didn't, I thought, yeah, if you just sit in the classroom, it's hard to keep the kids entertained for two and a half hours of the same subject partly not because of the subject or even that particular teacher but we've schooled the kids throughout from kindergarten to do things in blocks of time so it's not just the high school teachers it's the structure of high school but it's also the way often that they've been schooled throughout the whole system janet you also did uh some research comparing brazil and canada's place-based education systems um did you find out anything in particular that was interesting oh Yeah, Um, I was working with someone who really, um, he works with um, the rural education program. So his university is in a big city, but he goes out into these small towns. So he, as a professor, goes to the communities where the students, the teacher candidates are living. And um, he's teaching them about place-based education. And so I went along with him on a trip where we went to this village and they had told the students, the teacher candidates in advance were coming and you need to set something up for us for the day that we're there. So they had a whole day that they just did this course because the prof's coming out, the prof just spends a day there. And the students um, had set up places for us to go to. So we went to, I think three different farms and a restaurant all owned by the families of these students. And we got these amazing tours and what is the drink that they drink there, cachaca. Uh, Every place grows an acre of sugar cane so they can make their own cachaca. (laughs) So every place we go and try ours, it's the best. (laughs) So I was really, it was fascinating to see all the different kinds of agriculture Uh, that were taking place and one of the students said she says I went to kindergarten with this peer of mine who's now a teacher candidate and this is the first time I've been to his home I've never been to his home before 
And now I know I've met his family, but I've never been to their farm. I didn't understand their practices, what it was they were doing. Now I know. And it was just, yeah, I think that that has lots going for it. And then the other thing is in Brazil, um, all the kids who go to public school get um, food at lunchtime. They get a nutritional, completely balanced. It's your big meal of the day. And it's the same meal every day, every place we go, but it's um, locally produced and it's organic. So in that way, the government is kind of supporting the small local producers. Um, so we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about some of your uh, experiences teaching here. Um, but we, we've often talked about the difficulty of planning and guiding youth in outdoor education or through place-based experiences, but you have to work with a lot of student teachers or get to work with a lot of student candidates or teacher candidates in your place-based education courses. And have you ever been met with any resistance from future educators about this kind of teaching? Yeah, um, the resistance comes from those who they've already decided they wanna be a teacher because they wanna be in a classroom and they wanna be in control. Um, there are a lot of people, a lot of teacher candidates who want to work with kids and they come in and they start hearing about place-based education. And they just embrace it wholeheartedly because they realize the potential in it right away. And the resistance is coming from those people who just, it's not that they can't understand it, it's that they don't want to understand it. And there's got to be room for them too. I used to do this U-shaped debate. So... There's the people who think that kids should be outside never. They're in the classroom all the time and they're at one side of you and at the other side of you, I'd put myself and I'd say, okay, outside all the time, never in a classroom, like not necessarily outside, but in the community or wherever, not in the school. We don't even need schools anymore. And then everybody sort of negotiates their stance around the you down at the bottom, there'd be 50-50 and then they'd sort of sort out. And most of the people are between 70, 30 and 30, 70. So they, they see that there are lots of times when you should be outside, outside of the classroom. And there are people who just, no, not leaving the classroom ever. Okay, there's room for you too in the system. Have you, have you found a way to kind of get to those people or, or move them along the U a little bit more? <laughs> Um, I think maybe COVID did that, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, it wasn't my job to do that. I think mm -hmm, that if mm -hmm. they're that, you know, I think that in our society, we have room for those. They talk about the innovators and the early adopters, the late adopters. And then there's the ones who just dig in their heels and you've just got to drag them. Um, and we need those people who resist because they'll ask all those questions about, well, what about this? What about this? And so we need that. And we also need those people who leap in without thinking so that we can, oh, I guess I won't jump mm -hmm. so fast. <laughs> so I think that there's room for all of us. And if we just, if we insist that everybody come along, that's, we're not going to get all the full conversation that we need to have. So, yeah, I think there's, there's room in the system for people who never leave the classroom. I hope that, you know, maybe in the future we will have one school in the city and everybody else will be learning yeah. outside instead of it being a specialized <laughs> thing yeah yeah i would like to see it like right now 
the um, default is that if I'm taking my kids outside, I have to get, I have to file a plan with the principal. I would like to see it the opposite. I would like to say the principal say, file a plan for keeping the kids in the classroom. Why are they best learning in the classroom? I like that mindset. And yeah, we have not had a major accident yet in Saskatchewan. That's a good thing, you know? So it's good that we have to think all through, through all that risk stuff, which is something I'm doing now differently, Mike, with the pedagogies of places, the students actually do a risk assessment and fill out the plan. Like they think about all the different risks that could happen. And it's a good lesson. I was going to say earlier when you're talking about, you know, not pushing those people who might be apprehensive about it. I was telling Heather before the show here that, that in my first experience with you in a, in a, when you were my professor and for a place-based education, education course, you took us out to the Northeast Swale. And I think there was like a group of 30 of us. And I remember a, it was the second class of the program and we all knew what we signed up for, but I don't think some folk knew what they had signed up for. Um, we were out in the Swale. And I think some people just thought, you know, like, what is this? Like, I don't want to be out here. I don't want to, this is not what I, this is not for me. And I remember them being apprehensive and, you know, verbalizing that at the beginning to whoever would listen. But then you ran us through uh, two and a half hours of experiences out at the swale. And I remember talking to those same individuals at the end. We did like solo time. We did nature hikes. You you linked us up with some uh, uh, with some folks from Wasson and Ducks Unlimited. And you just and we went and planted some things from some native pra- uh, habitats. And I remember them at the end of the, of the experience being like, okay, that was legit. <laughs> that, that was good. <laughs> and then from then on, like it was then for the rest of the year, I think it just, instead of people putting up this blockade and these, and these things of, of like, like, I don't want, like, this is not me. They, I think they became more open-minded about all your lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I think from that early experience with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was um we went out to uh, Beaver Creek and it was minus 19. And I was so happy that we actually got some cold weather because it's important to sort of embrace that. And there was one student who had been coming, one teacher candidate and never dressed properly for the weather. And that time she was, and she said it was a life-changing moment sitting out. It was so quiet and the birds coming to her. And it was like, oh, wow, this is life-changing. But there were some students who didn't show up. And one of the students wrote in the course evaluation that we could have died. <laughs> I thought... <laughs> you take that feedback with a grain oh, of salt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 When you're working with little kids and they say they could have died, you don't want them to take that home to their families, but they think it's the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I love hearing those um, those stories about like students or future teachers in your in your case, um, saying that their life was changed from an outdoor experience that you provided. And one student, <laughs> one student. more. Well, I guess one student verbalized it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, do you see the landscape of education changing in a positive direction? You said that you started at the university in science in '98. Was it? Um, since then, I guess, have you seen education moving more positively to incorporate place-based education? Um, yeah, I have actually. 
Um, I mean, we had that amazing program that Michael was in the first year of, so he got the benefit of sort of the trial. We never did actually get to a point where we could evaluate it before somebody came in and started changing it all back to the old program, but we still have the place-based education course. And I see students um, learning from that. We also have our master's program in foundations, which focuses on environmental education and social justice and um, more and more teachers taking that and learning how to do this, just learning about it. If they're teachers already and they learn about the concepts, they can apply them. And if they're teacher candidates, then having those experiences and trying it out and they just, um, they're more likely to do it. They're not seeing it so much now as this is just crazy. They're actually seeing other teachers who are doing it, they're trying it out. And so I do think that we are going to have more of that. Um, I'm working with a national group right now and they're trying to get um, a program online for teacher candidates where they can sign up for it. And at the end of it, they get a little certificate. It's probably going to be free or it'll be $50 or something. And they get all these lessons online where they, um, learn some of the skills and, and the theories and so on behind um, environmental education. Right. And you said that was a national organization that you're working with? Yeah. Yeah. It's part of ECOM. I don't know if you're... And yeah, so there's one part of ECOM that is for teacher education. So it's professors as opposed to teachers. And um, yeah, we get, we're, we're doing this to try to promote environmental education amongst um, all college of colleges of education. And then the other thing is that all the deans of all the different colleges of education in Canada get together and they talk about what sorts of things should be in common. And one of the things that Dean Cecilia Reynolds, she was our dean before the one who resigned in January, um, who pushed for um, Indigenous education. So there's an accord now from all the deans of education that Indigenous education be included in all colleges of education. And it looks like our next accord is going to be environmental education. Yeah. So I guess kind of on the same vein of... Um being a climate activist, you were instrumental in creating a native habitat garden at the U of S for the public. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little more about this project and why you took it on or how it came to be? Um, well, I was working with a teacher who developed one at her school, North Park School. Mike? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so she and her grade one, two class developed it. And so we were doing some research around it. It was just fascinating to watch the kids learning and what they were saying and how, how entranced they became with plants. And there was one little boy who was rescuing all the weeds that his parents were pulling up out of the yard and planting them just outside the fence because I'm watering them because they're plants and they have to live. <laughs> so it was just, yeah, it was a wonderful project. And then um, the next group of science education students I was teaching where they would have a choice of projects. And um, one group decided that, because I talked a little bit about this research, one group decided we should have 
one at the university by the College of Education. And it would be really good for students to be able to see this. And they came up with this plan. It was really amazing. So I said, okay, well, take it to the Dean. It was Cecilia Reynolds. And they took it to her. She said, yeah, this is really amazing. So she took it over to Buildings and Grounds, Facilities Management. And they said, okay. They wanted somebody to try out native plants. Might as well be us, because they didn't want to invest the money for the time. And <laughs> but they were very supportive, and they have been very supportive. And so, but they didn't give us any money. So we had to find the money to fund it. And so we got it going. And then Shannon Dick uh, found a grant, and she and I applied for it. There were like 200 projects that applied, and five that got funded. And we were one of them. Um, it was an inter, it's Mexico, US and Canada. And we got $60,000 over three years to put into the garden. And so it was, it's got a number of iterations. It's a big enough area. It's about a 10th of an acre. It's got um, environmental features. It's got um, play features for early learners and it's got indigenous features. So um, it's just, it's kind of like a native prairie condensed, really. So instead of, like we have a scale model of something called the celestial circle that's modeled on one that's in uh, Moose Mountain. So we've got a scale model of it. So it's way smaller than the one at, at the reserve there, the First Nation there. Um, so everything is kind of condensed. And, and then we've got an earth turtle that one of our elders helped us build with the kids and things like that in the garden, as well as the native plants. Mm -hmm. yeah. What happens though, I find whenever I start these projects with my class, then the class graduates and they move on, but I'm still there. <laughs> so now yes. I go to the school like five or six times a summer and go water all the trees. I'm like, well, I just have a connection, which is the whole lesson, I guess. You're teaching the students how to make a connection to, to the environment. But I'm like, oh, I guess I'm the biggest learner. From <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. These students who designed the project were not there to yeah. build it. Mm -hmm. And then each, I mean, the people who actually worked in the summer, when we got enough money to hire summer students, that, that was huge. That made a big difference. Um, but the... Uh, the students who work there in the summer, they just have a profound connection to the land in a way that other people who just visit it don't necessarily get. But it's a really good example of how just $60,000 got me three years of summer students and all that infrastructure. And it's a really good play space. So when you think of elementary schools building those creative playgrounds, I don't know how much they cost, $50,000, $60,000 to build and this is a place where the kids can run around, they can hop on and you can put in planks. You've got, there's lots of stumps for them. There's um, rocks, there's all sorts of loose parts for them to play with. And then you've created these other, this community then of people who care about this space and who can, yeah, when they see it, it means something to them. Yeah. On that same note, do you, ha do you have a favorite place that you like to take students? I like to, um, well, downtown Saskatoon is really good for place-based uh, because then they can be more aware of like social justice issues. Uh, who doesn't feel welcome here? Who doesn't like, who isn't here? And that tells you who, it, who doesn't feel welcome here. And um, also looking at the green spaces, where are the green spaces? How many green spaces are there? 
um, looking for the history, um, all the subject areas, like you just walk down there and teacher candidates who have been thinking about place-based education. I really wanted to just like, I'm going to be an English language arts teacher. And what is this? And then they just, they just start brain blipping. They just start seeing so much is going on there. There's art, there's phys ed, there's, and this was an exciting time. Um, one group of students had gone off to explore. They'd all gone off in their own groups to explore. And then they come back and meet me at the library. And this one group said, tunnels, there's tunnels under Saskatoon. And I went, there's tunnels? <laughs> so all of a sudden, we've got a whole new dimension to the city that, you know, that they're finding from talking to people. Yeah, it's very cool. I don't know what, I don't know what the landscape is like in, in other cities across uh, Saskatchewan here for these kind of lessons. But yeah, I have always have my class do an urban tour where the students, you know, they design their own little tour of Saskatoon, different hotspots and take us around and do those things. Yeah. And like you say, Janet, just cover the the different scopes of social, economic and environmental justice within the city. And yeah, there's so many cool lessons out there for them. That's I agree. That's a great place to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other neighborhood is we'll often go up by Station 20 West. And, you know, and I'll, I might do that one first because um, they'll say, well, what? Uh, I talk about learning affordances and I'll say, well, look at this sidewalk. It's a learning affordance. We could be doing math. We could be doing, uh, because, you know, you can talk about how the shapes, you can talk about the amount of concrete there is there. We can talk about, we can do social justice. How wide are these sidewalks? How cracked and decrepit are they because they're in this neighborhood and then, you know, there are just so many different things you can just do with a sidewalk. So don't tell me there aren't learning affordances wherever you go. And, and then they just, it just opens their minds to the social injustices in that neighborhood, how bad the sidewalks are. That's opening my mind right now too, but just by you calling it place-based education and recognizing that, Hey, you don't have to get out of the city to do this because that, that almost feels like I'm doing a bit of a disservice uh, where I teach it so close to Regina. Really, like, no, we need to get out of Regina, avoid any like any urban population or or any town um, town structure of any sort. But yeah, you don't you don't have to. And I also like the the term learning affordance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that um, by by just taking students to exotic places where there aren't people, we are kind of separating nature from humanity and we are natural as well. And our, my dog, and we are also um, part, we're, we are part of nature and we have to recognize that there's land under the buildings. Like we need to sort of engage with all that and what have we done? Um, you know, the asphalt, the Miwasan Valley Trail, where it's asphalt in Saskatoon. Um, sometimes you see snakes out there because it's warm and that helps them digest their meals. So we think of it as a terrible thing. And it mostly isn't good because the snakes will get run over by cyclists. <laughs> but it also provides something, a nutrition affordance <laughs> for the snake. So, yeah. Yeah, we and you, this can be anywhere you want, Janet, but it doesn't have to be in the natural environment too. But do you have a favorite place uh, in Saskatchewan that you love to visit? 
Yeah. And as I said, that would depend on the season. <laughs> right now, I really wish I were canoeing in the north. I really like canoeing and I really like Saskatchewan's northern lakes and rivers. And I just think people who drive across the Trans-Canada and say something disparaging about Saskatchewan, I think Saskatchewan, the top two thirds is one big lake with a lot of islands. So don't tell me it's flat and dry. Um, but the flat and dry is beautiful too. And it's not flat. And it's like, there's so much that's in the, uh, in the grasslands, like, you just have to look down and see the beetles and the grasshoppers and the diversity of life there is, the plants. It's just amazing what we have in Saskatchewan. Um, so yeah, um, and then in winter, wherever I can go to cross-country ski or snowshoe or... So no, you don't I don't have, have a favorite, a favorite place. place. Want, yeah. yeah, just so long as it's within those borders. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to open up those borders for the last question, Janet, and ask if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I, I wish people weren't so greedy. I wish humans would just like back off and not treat everything as a resource that we need to consider all, all different, like everything, all the entities. We can't just just think of what's, oh, what makes me healthy? What makes me rich? You have to look at everything. Yeah. Well, it's a nice part of you teaching teachers is, you know, I think for us, sometimes it's like, you know, you have a good lesson or you have a good year and you're like, eh, you know, those kids, who knows what they're going to do? Maybe they'll. Right. It might yeah. end there, right? Or at least, you know, you're, you're impacting that, that next level of teachers, which has such a huge umbrella to it. Yeah, and just having one other teacher. There were um, there was a teacher I worked with who was a pre-K kindergarten teacher, and she had another teacher in a different school division that they were critical friends. So they were talking to each other like every day at the end of the day, like what went on for you and how did you do it? And they were totally into this stuff. They were just like walking into their classrooms and you would just see the learning. It was just amazing the things that they did and they had their kids outdoors a lot. Yeah. I need more critical friends. That's a good term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ideally your spouse performs that role, but sometimes it's just too much. Sometimes they just need yeah. to hug you. Sometimes yeah. they're sleeping still when you leave the house. So you need a critical friend at work, I think. Well, Janet, I think that's brought about the end here. So uh, yeah, just thanks so much for, for joining us today. It's been great to get to chat with yeah. you and and congrats on your recent retirement. Yeah, well, I'll start feeling it soon, I yeah. guess. <laughs> <laughs> Lots more time for cross-country skiing and snowshoeing in the winter than for yeah, you, I, hey? I sure hope so. Yeah, yeah. And it's good to meet you, Heather. Yes, you as well. But thanks so much. Okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Heather, what were your biggest takeaways from that conversation with Janet? Uh, well, that was my first time meeting Janet. And what really hit me was that she was so humble because everything I learned about her before was from reading her credentials and her achievements throughout her life. And she really didn't talk about those very much or shove them down our throat. Even we had to pry them out of her if we wanted anything, <laughs> uh, any bragging 
done. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear about the lives that she's touched or changed as, as a professor and teaching pre-service educators. Also, I loved her term learning affordance, and I'm going to try to remember that one. How about you? I think her stance on not being so forceful for, uh, when you're educating those who are like anti, not anti, but against or not necessarily climate deniers but I think apprehensive about climate education mm -hmm. and I think her stance on not like forcing it down their throat not making a big scene about it but just letting them kind of slowly take in the lessons and and and, see, and make their own kind of connections whether that means they're going to be impacted by that lesson or not it's just kind of you don't force the issue you got to let this sometimes take play out uh, play its course If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, leave us a review on whatever app you're listening on, and send it to a friend who you think might be interested. As always, thanks for listening and take care. Bye.